The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We are going through the communicable attributes of God, and we've gotten tonight to discussing wisdom. So let's ask God for help. Father, thank you for this evening, for the time we have to be together. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters of mine that have come out tonight. And Father, I pray that you would please put your hand on me now. Help me. Give me wisdom uh, yourself. Give me strength and power. Give me a sense of your presence and anointing of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, I don't just ask these things for myself, but I ask for all of us. So Lord, we have difficulty not only speaking the Word of God, but hearing it and taking it into our hearts and being transformed by it. So I pray that Satan would be far from us uh, tonight. I pray that the Word would find a soft and sensitive place in our hearts, that we would be yielded to it, and that we would learn what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we're looking at the, the uh, attribute, the attribute of God called wisdom. Wisdom. How would you make a distinction between wisdom and knowledge how would you how would you distinguish between those two we you know you have the attribute of god his knowledge or his omniscience okay what is yeah go ahead jessica okay knowing the right thing and able to do it very good other thoughts Okay, you know, I think there tends to be this application side. For me, when I think of wisdom in the Bible, my mind tends to go to the book of Proverbs, which is a very practical book. It has to do with uh, everyday life type of issues, you know, your mouth, how you speak, relationships, parenting, money, time, those kinds of things that God cares about. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's the application of knowledge. I think we could say that uh, God's wisdom is a subset of his omniscience. I think they are very closely related that, um, but you know, God, God knows all things. And we discussed that last time. And God knows all things that are, that were, and that will be, and all those things that might have been or might be everything. That's all part of God's knowledge. But wisdom tends to be, it seems to understand the best of all these things, the best outcomes, the best way to get there, etc. You know, like probably most of you have GPSs right now. And I, I just think they're just sometimes I'm wiser than my GPS. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I know the, I just know the area better than it does. It has tendencies to put me on main roads and other things that I just, I actually love to frustrate it. You know what it says in this metallic voice, recalculating, you know, this kind of thing. I just think that's kind of fun, you know, and just watch it just recalculate the whole time. You know, and it's like I've talked to I said, learn this route. This is the best way to get to, you know, southeastern or whatever. You don't know it, but this is the way to do it. But it keeps one put me on I-85 or whatever, you know, and it does. So but I think of the wisdom of God as knowing, knowing not only the best destination, but the best way to get there. God is wise in getting there. He, you know, the old expression, the ends justify the means. Okay. And God knows the ends and the means. He knows, he knows all things. And so when I think of the wisdom of God, I think in that way. But, you know, I think we're going to uh, perhaps be su- surprised. There are some times that the wisdom of God is surprising to us. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And, and so we can actually 
you know, what God thinks of as wise, we might not. But then as we grow in, in, uh, in Christ, we can see more of the wisdom of God and see what he's trying to do. A very good example of this is how God labors to humble us and how God's great work here is to humble us. And so some things that God considers wise, we might not consider wise. But so often the wisdom of God has to do with the humbling of man. And so we can talk about that a little bit. Let's get into the definition here from Wayne Grudem. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. So that's not just knowing all the possible options, that's omniscience, but choosing the best one from the whole pile. Okay? And so for scriptural support, you know, we, we, uh, all you have to do is look up the word wise or wisdom, etc., and you're going to have a lot of verses. Uh, Romans 16.27 says, To the only wise God be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Hang on, I want to see if... Yeah, all right, we'll get, we'll get there. Okay. I did this outline some time ago and I want to be sure that we're going to cover one verse that's popping in my mind now. I'm noticing when it comes to my brain where water's flowed before it flows again. So I, you know, it's all right. We'll get there. All right. Uh, Job 9.4 says, wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? You know, God is wise and powerful. Job 12.13, to God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. So these are just parts of God's basic nature. God is a wise being. Uh, we also see the wisdom of God in ordering creation. God has ordered creation in a very wise way. Psalm 104:24. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So we can see the wisdom of God just in crafting uh, ecosystems, biology, physics, chemistry, these things meshing together beautifully. And so just amazing, the wisdom of God. Psalm 104 celebrating that. Psalm 104 is such a great psalm meditating on the uh, creation, God's, God's wisdom in creation, you know, fish and birds and flora, fauna, all the things that there are in this world. And you just see the wisdom of God in all of it. Just marvelous. But we especially, I think, more than anything, we see God's wisdom uh, when it comes to the issues of salvation, redemption, the church, Christ, all. That's where you're really, really going to see the wisdom of God shining forth. Look at this one in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Uh, you know, I've got 18 through 31, but I only have a portion of it. First Corinthians 1 really is an extended meditation on God's wisdom versus human wisdom. You know, and, and you understand that because he's writing to a Corinthian church that is steeped in that national pride that the Greeks had in wisdom. They had the philosophers there. Corinth is very close to Athens, just a couple of, of our drive, as I remember, uh, very, very close. And so... You know, Athens, really the symbol of philosophy, of human wisdom in the world, some of the greatest thinkers of all time, whose, whose thoughts, whose philosophies are still studied and revered um, by people all over the world, Plato and Aristotle, Socrates, all of these great thinkers came from Greece. They were, they were in that area, even in Athens. And so I think the Corinthians uh, were tempted to be proud of human wisdom. You know, that was a national trait. And they were known for their wisdom, where the Romans might be known for their, their military power, their governmental system, that kind of thing. But the Greeks were known for their wisdom. And so Paul is really just taking that on, isn't he, in 1 Corinthians 1, taking it on. And he says a lot of things in there about man's wisdom versus God's. Uh, he said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Christ is God's wisdom. But there's other things in that section too. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. Now, you just have to unravel that, but, but just think. It was very wise for God to set it up that, God, that man couldn't find him by, by their wisdom. You see that? It's just very wise for God that the philosophers end up empty at a dead end. That's just a wise thing for God. Why is that wise? Paul said it was wise. Why is it wise for God to set it up that human philosophers cannot find him? Why is that a wise thing? That's right. Remember what I said a few moments ago. So often the wisdom of God comes with the humbling of man. And, and it's wise because the, the pride of man, which is a subset or a connection, let's say a connection of Satan's pride and rebellion against God, is the very problem in the universe. It's the thing God's trying to destroy. And so in redemptive history, in the wisdom of God, he's got to set up things that are going to humble us. And he does. And so what he's got is he's got these philosophers who are looking at phys- physical creation, you know, they're looking at the way things are. They're looking at science. You know, they're looking at, uh, at human interactions. They're studying and they're thinking. They pull aside and they just ponder. And they think about the God who made these things. And some of the best of the Greek philosophers got an awfully long way toward thinking about one creator, God, and all that. But Paul, knowing what they came up with, said, they don't know him. They do not know him. He is the unknown God. To, him, the, he, to them, he is unknown. And so in the wisdom of God, God had to reveal himself. And if he doesn't reveal himself, they'll never know him. And, and you know, Jesus celebrates this in Matthew 11. You just look at that. And, and he praises God for his wisdom in hiding these things from the wise and learned and revealing them to little babes. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. He's just celebrating how wise it is for God to frustrate the wise and the scholar, and say, you want to become a little child, then I'll show, you, show myself to you. But if you're not going to become like a little child, you'll never know me. And, and Jesus is just rejoicing in that, celebrating it. It just seems so wise to Jesus. And it seems wise to Paul too. So really, I'd, you know, we could really spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 1 as you ponder the contrast, really, between human wisdom and God's wisdom. All right, 1 Corinthians 2 continues the theme. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. In other words, God's going to evacuate their apparent wisdom. He's going to show that, it, that there was nothing to it. They're coming to nothing. No, we, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Boy, isn't, I just think you could take some of these phrases or these sentences from the Apostle Paul and just meditate on them all day. God has this secret wisdom that he crafted before the creation of the world, which he destined for our glory. That's, boy, I mean, that could just make you happy all day long if you just meditate on it and say, boy, God is thinking things through. And before the world even began, he came up with this pattern of wisdom and the end of it is our glory. We're going to be glorious in all that. But not by human means, not by the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So, what Paul's saying is the gospel actually really is wise. It may appear foolish, you know, the foolishness of the gospel. That's, you know, I think Paul remembers very well his reception at uh, Mars Hill and the Areopagus and, and how, how they sneered at the bodily resurrection, how they mocked it. And the, the mockery of this concept that some Jewish man dying on some Roman cross somewhere could have any effect whatsoever. It's just utter foolishness. It means nothing. 
But Paul says, you know, it actually isn't. It's really very wise. It may seem foolishness, but the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. So you always put quotations around it, the foolishness of God. It really isn't foolish, but it may seem that way to man. And then he gets to this in Romans uh, 11, uh, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge. So there we have them side by side, right? Wisdom and knowledge. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So there's a lot of kind of intellectual words in there, wisdom, knowledge, uh, judgments and paths, you know, these kinds of things. And, and you really have to see that in context. Uh, the context there, immediate context, has to do with God's plan for the Jews. And, you know, Romans 11 is, is the culmination of those three chapters in which he deals with that, that very troubling question of what about the Jews? Why are the Jews rejecting Christ? If they're God's people, has God's word failed? Is God, has God missed it with them and now he's trying again with the Gentiles? Is that what's going on here? Not at all. And so we get some of those tough chapters on God's eternal predestination and how, how Jacob I loved and Esau I hated and, and you know, it does not depend on man's desire effort, Romans 9 and then Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which, you know, we seem to go from Calvinism to Arminianism and then back again. So, you know, it's just very, very deep and he's, re, you know, he's, he's just, and then Romans 11 just has to do with God's purposes and election and, you know, this remnant and how Elijah says, I'm the only one here and says, no, I've reserved for myself 7,000, not bowed the knee to Baal. And there's this remnant chosen by grace. And, and then there's this olive tree image and all that. And these branches, the natural branches stripped off through unbelief. And there are these wild branches. That's us, friends. Uh, we're the wild branches, the uncultivated ones. And we've been grafted into this Jewish tree. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and drawing nourishing sap from the patriarchs and, and from, from Abraham. We're children of Abraham and, and all that. And the natural branches laying on the ground. But Paul says, you know, God's able to graft them in again. If they'll just repent, if they'll just believe, God will graft them in again. He is able to graft them in again. And now let me tell you a mystery. Mystery is that, that all Israel is going to be saved. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And when that full number has come in, then the Jews are coming in. And their redemption is going to be reconciliation for the world. It's basically the final act of human history. It's a mystery. Don't, don't suppose that means there will be no Jews in hell. We're not saying that. But when he says all Israel will be saved, I really believe that means that final generation. The Jews that are alive at that time, they're going to turn in large numbers, mass revival, and at last they're going to turn to Christ. Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. See, that's where he's at. You see, it's context. It's like God has figured this whole thing out. And again, notice at the core of it is the humbling of human pride. The Gentiles are humbled and the Jews are humbled. Everybody's suitably humbled and then we get saved. You see what I'm saying? Everybody's just abased and made low. We are the wild branches who really don't even really belong and we're grafted into a Jewish tree. We have to kind of accept the title of honorary Jew, Okay. And it's like, all right, so we're honorary Jews. So we're, you're spiritually circumcised. We'll accept it. And they have to accept that they were stripped out because they wouldn't accept their own Savior. And they're laying on the ground. But if they would just repent, they can be grafted in back into their own tree. See, that's how that works. Everybody gets humbled. And that's the wisdom of God. You see it? It's just incredible. Or you could say that the wisdom of God just has to do with the whole first 11 chapters of Romans, which is fine for me too. And that's all of the stuff that Paul co uh, covers in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, all those great chapters of the gospel marvelous wisdom of God. So we see the wisdom of God, don't we, in salvation? We see the wisdom of God in the plan of redemption. We don't see it all, though. 
We don't see it like we should. I think you ought to meditate on it more. You ought to just, just have your jaw drop open at how wise God is. Because if he did that, if that happened more, you wouldn't murmur against him as much as you do. You know, God knows exactly what he's doing with your life. He knows what he's doing. We see also the wisdom of God in the construction of the church. Again, notice we go back to 1 Corinthians 1. I find this fascinating. This is seen in who he adds to the church and how he gifts them. All right, look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the, the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. You know what he's saying there? Saying that basically it's kind of like... <laughs> I would never do this. I really wouldn't. But I know that there's some people that go in for these, um, these uh, fantasy leagues in baseball and basketball and football and all that. And there are these drafts and people go through and they pick players, right? And, they, and I don't know how it works, but I know it's immensely time consuming. And so if any of you are doing that, come and talk to me afterwards. We'll talk about that because, you know, it's just immensely time consuming. But they go through and there's this pattern of draft and you get to pick your, the players, the NFL players, the Major League Baseball players, you pick them. Well, that's in effect what this is, these verses are saying. God went through the world and picked who he wanted for the church. You can't deny that's what it's saying. He chose, he chose, he chose. It says it over and over. What kind of people did he, chose? did he choose? He chose people that would exalt his grace and his mercy and would themselves be humbled. He chose the people nobody wanted. You look at India, for example. The overwhelming majority of Indian Christians are Dalit. They're the untouchable caste of the lowest level of society. Dear friends, is that an accident? It's like, oh, no, 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 there's a human psychology to it. You see, they're rejected, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're lives, nobody wants them, and that's why they find belonging. Find, look, all that stuff may be true, but that's not why they're in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 says they're in Christ because of him. It is because of him that you were in Christ Jesus. It's not an accident that the overwhelming majority are rejects. God did it on purpose. Why? To humble and to shame the wise and the strong and the mighty so that everybody gets leveled. And again, do you not see? This is the wisdom of God. It's in the wisdom of God to choose means by which we get saved and are humbled in doing it. There's a narrow gate. There's this, this narrow path, this difficulty that strips us of all of our pride. And we see that. And so, you know what I, I, I get out of 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30, is that God puts local churches together. It's not willy-nilly. He puts them together. He chooses and puts them together. Do you, do you think God is that attentive? Is he that attentive to detail? Flynn, what do you think? Is he that attentive? Absolutely. He puts local churches together. And the, the people that are put together are not the best of the best of the best, according to this. It's like, now, Pastor, you're kind of insulting us right now. I'm kind of feeling like I was feeling good about myself, and now I walk in here and I find out that I'm not the cream of the crop. I always thought of myself that way. But uh, I'm just reading what the Scripture says here. And, and I think what it is is that God does this on purpose so that we would be humbled. Anyway, Ephesians 3, also you see the wisdom of God and his gifting of members. Ephesians 3, 6 and 10, it says, This mystery is that through the gospel of the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together, one body, and shares together in the promise of, in Christ Jesus. His intent was that now through the church, look at this, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Okay, manifold means 
multifaceted. The, the, the various, the, the variegated wisdom of God. There's just different aspects to the wisdom. And the wisdom here is in somehow in a mysterious way putting Jews and Gentiles together into one entity now. Making this one new man. He talks about in Ephesians 2. This mysterious commingling of Jews and Gentiles together in one body. And who is he showing his wisdom to? What does it say? Look at Ephesians 3. The verse is right there on the page. Who is he demonstrating his wisdom to? Who is he showing off in front of? Who is that? Who are the rulers and authorities and all that? Angels, right? And probably in, in, later in Ephesians, no doubt, wicked angels, evil, evil beings. Our struggle is against them. We're struggling with them, these rulers and authorities, right? Ephesians 6. So Satan, he's basically showing Satan how wise he is by putting the church together this way. It's a marvelous thing if you think about it. You know, he's putting his wisdom on display. That's what it says, okay? All right, we also see the wisdom of God in his sovereign overruling of earthly events. Uh, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It is a wise thing, the stuff that's happening to you in your life right now. You may not think so, but it is. It's part of God's wise plan for you. And it may be very painful. It may be not what you would have chosen. It may be uh, something you regret. It may be things that are going on that are just really causing you distress. It may be that you're in a period right now where none of those things are happening. And, 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 you know, it's a time of peace and rest and comfort and success. All I'm saying is that God's wise about directing your life. He knows what he's doing. He's mixing things together in a way that, that, you know, is very, very wise. And, you know, you could say, well, you know, it doesn't feel like wisdom to me, but just, just know this as you look at it, <clears throat> as you look at it. If it were all the one or all the other, you'd be destroyed. Do you understand that? You'd just be destroyed. If it were all success and, and fatness all the time, it would just destroy you. All right? You would not love God. You wouldn't depend on Him. You wouldn't lean on Him like you need to. And on the other hand, if it were nothing but trials, count up your joy stuff, you know, in James 1, if that's all it is, you wouldn't be able to handle it. If you don't think so, then read the book of Job and say, am I ready for that? <laughs> okay. I, you know, he barely kept his sanity. All right, and it really was at that point, and he, was the, he really was, biblically, the best there was available at the time. And he just about couldn't do it anymore. I mean, it, he was really at the, at the limit, and so there's lots of chapters about that. And so the fact of the matter is God is wise in mixing together not too much of one or the other. And so God is wise in how he's dealing with you, all right? So, now, wisdom. How is wisdom a communicable attribute? Well, we are commanded to be wise. So that's something that should be true of us. We should be wise too. We should be wise like God is wise. Okay, Psalm 2.10, <laughs> kings of the earth are commanded to be wise. The wisdom there is embrace the son, the messianic ruler. Don't fight him anymore. Don't try to throw off his chains. Be wise. Why? Because he's the king of kings and he's omnipotent. And so it's really, really foolish to fight God omnipotent. That's a bad thing. So be wise and stop fighting him. Okay, that's what it says in Psalm 2. Or uh, Proverbs 6.6, 6, uh, it says, Go to the ant, your sluggard, consider its ways, and be wise. It's a command to us to be wise and not be lazy. Proverbs 8.33, Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not ignore it. So we are commanded to be wise, therefore it's a communicable attribute. We also see that God gives wisdom to those who fear him and ask him. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've seen that before. Proverbs 2, 6, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The Lord does not give self-existence. You understand that? He doesn't. 
he, I, you could say he can't or whatever. I'm just saying he doesn't. He doesn't give self-existence, but he does give wisdom. And so this is very much clearly a communicable attribute. He can communicate it to us. Ecclesiastes 2.26, To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Uh, Psalm 51.6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And clearly, James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. By the way, isn't it fascinating, you know, if you go back to the Garden of Eden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, God knows that when you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. This is the thing. God is happy to give us wisdom. He wants to give us all of these things freely as a gift. So that's, that's the whole thing. Uh, God wants to give you the, the wisdom that Satan wanted to slide, you know, surreptitiously as a thief to you. God will give it freely and openly, right from his own hand, if you just ask him. All right? Truest wisdom, of course, of all, is to become a Christian. 2 Timothy 3.15, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What a great phrase that is. Wise for salvation. It is wise to be saved. Okay? That's wisdom, Right? And, and to find salvation in Christ Jesus makes you the wisest uh, in the category of the wisest people on earth. Okay, it was wise for you to flee the wrath to come and to flee the right, to the right place, the right refuge, the only refuge there is. That was wise. And the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Isn't that great? So they have that power to give wisdom, the wisdom that you need for salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 5, uh, 15. And then 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. The wisest thing of all is Christ, to come to Christ. But our wisdom will always be limited, unlike God's, as we've already seen in Romans 11.33. Um, God's wisdom is beyond us. We don't always fully trace it out. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, basically, in effect, says God isn't necessarily going to give you a full explanation of all the stuff that happened to you in your life. You know, it's like a mystery where you get to read the back of the book when you get there and you find out why it all happened. I'm not saying he will or won't. I'm just saying he doesn't owe it to you. And I don't think you're really going to need it. Did God give Job all that? It doesn't seem like he gave him any explanation at all. He gave him himself. And that was enough. He didn't give him all the explanation of why all this happened to him. So I guess what I'm saying is we're never going to be God, okay? Although we will be very wise, far wiser than we are now. But, uh, you know, we're not necessarily going to get the train depot, namely sitting up in the switch station, be able to look at every train and how it's all moving. That's something God does. That's not something we... I mean, look at the angels. They, they frequently don't have the first clue what's going on in the book of Revelation. They're like, oh, what's happening next? It's like they're watching a movie and it's all very exciting. You know, they're like, uh, oh, now he's doing this and they're celebrating and worshiping. And they're tracking with what God's doing, right? And, and it says even angels long to look into these things. They're not fully aware of everything. And so... You know, they're learning too. All right, anything else on wisdom? Any questions about wisdom, the wisdom of God? Something we should celebrate. We really should. You know, and we should seek it. We should seek wisdom from God. You know, I really think I'm, I'm teaching a class at Southeastern on, on the Puritans, and the Puritans were tremendous planners of their days. And their desire was to plan carefully so that they could get in all the good works that God had for them to do. That was the thing. They wanted to be sure they didn't miss any of the good things God wanted them to do. And I think we need that kind of wisdom, don't we, in, in, our, in our hurried age, uh, so that we're not passively reacting all the time, but we are setting out to do these certain things. That's what it means that the days are evil. We have to be wise because the days are evil and, and live uh, with wisdom. So seek it from God.
Okay. The next attribute, communicable attribute, is truthfulness. Truthfulness, and Grudem adds the word faithfulness here. Definition from Grudem is God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standards of truth. Okay, you know, it's, it's hard when you use, you know, a, a, the same word to define a word. God's truthfulness means that he's true. So I guess I'd like to kind of get out to another word, and I tend to think of it in terms of reality. It corresponds to what is. That's what truth is. And there is a universe that is, and all the other universes aren't, okay? And so both in spiritual and physical, both in history and present and future, there is a truth and there's falsehood, right? And so God speaks what's true. That means he speaks what corresponds to reality. You could use another, uh, if the reality thing doesn't help you, you could use the Bureau of Standards and Measurements thing. And there has to be some standard for a gram or a meter or you know all these things. And these things are defined. And God is that standard. And so whatever corresponds to his standards, that's what is true and truthfulness. So if God speaks it, it's truthfulness or true, etc. So we, uh, we believe in the only true God. So what does that imply? When we use that language, he's the only true God. The other gods are false. They do not correspond to reality, okay? They aren't God, all right? And, you know, it's like, well, God is just a word and you can go etymologically and all that. Well, listen, we need some word for God and God's given us many words for God, God or Lord, etc. These are English words. You know, if you want to go into Hebrew or Greek, there are other words, but we have to have a word. And then God then says, okay, here's the word and then here are all these Bible verses that teach us about this being called God. There's no one else like him. That's how it works. And so we read all these verses that teach us whatever language we use, okay? Um, and I've learned different languages, a different word. It doesn't make a difference. The sound doesn't matter. What matters is the concept, and then the Bible then fills that concept up with truth. The only true God is he's the only being that corresponds to all those things that are said about him in the Bible. That's what it's going to be. the only true God. All right, Jeremiah uh, 10, 10, and 11. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. You know, you really, you really have to go to, was it Mount Carmel where Elijah's there with the prophets of Baal and they're having that contest to see who really is God. You know, and, and I think it's just, it was just so proven that day what it means that he is the only true God. Do you remember what happened? They're going to have that, they have the two sacrifices and, you know, they have the, the, the animals, the two altars and, and the stones and all that. And they're crying out to Baal, oh, Baal, hear us and all that. You remember? Remember how Elijah has a little fun at their expense? It's like, shout louder. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Maybe he's, you know, sleeping. Maybe he's using the facilities, you know, you know, that kind of thing. You know, he actually does poke at him a little bit and, uh, you know, because he, he doesn't exist. The God who answers by fire, he is the true God. Now, again, that's something that has to come from God first because, you know, we're not going to put the Lord to the test. Elijah wasn't putting the Lord to the test. This is when he prays, he says, oh, Lord, hear me that it may be seen that everything I've done has been done from you, that you told me to come and do this. So God told Elijah to, to, to do that. And then it's just a simple prayer and it's over quickly. It's over quickly. The fire falls from heaven. Everything's burned up and everyone falls down and they all say, the Lord, he is God. He's the only true God. The other gods are false. They don't exist. They're not real. Okay? So he is the only true God. And then John 17, 3, Jesus uses this uh, exact same expression. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he is the only true God. 
So God always speaks the truth. Psalm 119, 160. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. So everything God says is true. Um, 1 Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So God never lies. Whenever God speaks, he speaks the truth. Titus 1, 2. The hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie uh, promised long ages ago. It's just not possible. It's morally impossible for God to speak a lie. I mean, you just think that way. And that's really shocking for us because the Bible says all men are liars. It's far from morally impossible for us to speak a lie. <laughs> that's a double negative. But I mean, I mean, we do lie, uh, but God never lies. Jesus never lied. I mean, do you see Jesus' love for the truth in the encounters that he has with his hateful and murderous enemies? How many times do they come and Jesus tells a truth that will probably get him killed except that the Father's protecting him and his time hadn't yet come? But you look at that in John 5. You know, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus answered and said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. Now they're trying to kill him. OK, he was telling the truth. His father is always working and he is working. And God was his father. He spoke the truth. We shouldn't imagine he didn't know the effect this would have on them, that they would want to kill him. He knew. I'm just saying, look at his love for the truth. He just always spoke the truth spoke the truth in front of Pilate. Are you a king? You are right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, in fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And so he loves the truth, even if it cost him his life. Yes, go ahead. It is amazing. But, you know, here's, he's, the, he's the son of the God who struck Uzzah dead when everyone was celebrating and the ark was being brought into the Jerusalem. That ended the party, friends. It was over at that point. And it's like God didn't, it's like God didn't know that everybody's going to like, hmm, music stop. Everybody's standing there, dead man. And he did it on purpose. No more party. Everyone goes home and everybody's like feeling awful and, and repentant and scared and all that. And God intended that. He intended to do that. And so, yeah, he's, you, know, you invite Jesus and you might find out the truth about yourself, you know. And, and it's just amazing uh, like that. And, you know, he just absolutely committed to the truth. Um, how, yeah. yeah, please. It's a blessing that he has that comfort to know. Yeah. That we don't have to try and figure out, is this true this time or not? Yeah, yeah. And to just have that security to know that it is the truth. Yeah, absolutely. To, to know the character. Think about this now to know the character of the man who's looking over and saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what does that mean to the thief on the cross? must be true, right? So if God speaks that to you, it's true. Of all that the Father has given me, I will lose none, but raise them up at the last day. That's the truth. And you can bank your life on that. That's good. Because he doesn't just speak convicting words that lay us bare and flay us for our sins and make us convicted. He also speaks the word of grace, the word of the gospel that gives us hope. It's a beautiful thing. All right, how about this? Jesus was so committed to the truth that got him killed. We've made this point, but look at it from Matthew 26. But the, Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. So again, Jesus spoke the truth and it got him killed very, very plainly there. No, I haven't. Um, amen, amen. It's just a transliteration, I think, of the Hebrew word for telling the truth, basically. So the NIV gives us truly, truly. KJV, verily, verily. It's basically a solemn uh, you know, uh, a statement of pay attention to what I'm about to say. Now, we know uh, that everything Jesus says is the truth, but he still does give us that additional help. Like, sit up and pay attention to this. Now, listen to what I'm saying. I actually used to listen to... Um, uh, it was Charles Stanley on TV. I used to listen to him and he said, now listen now, listen. And he say it like every 38 seconds. So, you know, and, and, and it's like the first few times I'm listening, but after a while it's like, all right, I, I get it. You know, you want me to hear everything you're saying. Okay, I'll, I'll listen to everything, you know, but it just kind of loses its impact. Jesus doesn't say amen, amen all the time. He just says it at key times, you know, key times. Mm-hmm. Truth, you're saying it's true or truthful. Like if you say amen to someone else's prayer, you're, you're ascending, ascending to what they're saying and you're saying, I think that's true and I want that to happen and I'm, I'm in with that. I agree with that prayer, that kind of thing. Amen. Okay. All right. Uh, God always keeps his promises. He is faithful. So he speaks the truth, keeps his promises. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Note the connection there between faithfulness and truthfulness. So the same thing. God keeps his promises. He spoke the truth. Um, Joshua 21:45. not one of all of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Isaiah 46, 11, what I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. What a great verse that is. I just love those 10 chapters, Isaiah 40 to 49. They're just amazing chapters. So rich in the theology of God. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. There haven't been a thousand generations, friends. There haven't. I mean, what's a generation? About 25 years. So hear me, go on record. An MIT graduate saying there have not been a thousand generations. There just haven't been. Let's be honest here. The fact of the matter is, this is just saying if there were a thousand generations, God would still keep his promise. That's how faithful God is. God's, God himself and his words are the ultimate standard of truth. We've already covered that. Your word is truth. It could equally be said, equally helpfully, your word is true, but it's deeper than that here. It's just your word is truth. Just like Jesus said earlier, I am the way and the truth. <laughs> Notice the perfection of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, right? So Jesus is truth and God's word is truth. Jesus is God's word. It all just fits, doesn't it? Just perfectly like a puzzle or something like that. But it's all true and truth, okay, coming from God. Isaiah 45, 19, I've not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I've not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And then Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Very important statement. The issue here in in Romans 3 is whether God's word or promise to Israel is invalidated by Israel's unbelief. No, it isn't. That's what he's saying. Even if every Jew didn't believe it, God would still keep his promise. That's really what he's saying. Okay? How truthful, truthfulness is a communicable attribute. Very important to meditate on this. We are commanded to tell the truth. And we are commanded to be faithful to our promises. 
Leviticus 19.11. Do not uh, steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. You know, it's amazing how Leviticus really just covers it all when it says, you shall not lie nor deal falsely with one another. It's like, well, I didn't lie. It's like, all right. (laughs) But you did deal falsely with me, you know. I mean, Satan knows how to tell the truth in service of a lie. He knows how to do that. He can, he can tell misleading truths all the time and head you in the wrong direction. You know, um, that's why I think it's false witnesses that said, you know, this fellow is able to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, that's actually somewhat what he said. They're still false witnesses because they're intending to kill Jesus by the truth. So they're false witnesses. He, Jesus isn't an unrighteous person deserving of death. So they're false witnesses who tell the truth. All right. We ought to tell the truth in service of a truth. You know, we ought to we ought to be completely truthful beings. But, you know, we're not. I mean, what do you do about that? I mean, you look in your heart and you just see the lies, the the exaggerations, the shadings of the truth, you know, all that kind of thing. What do we do about the fact that, you know, all men are liars and that that doesn't just instantly go away like the morning mist when we believe in Jesus? We still struggle with telling the truth. Well, I think you have to just repent. You have to look inward and say, I don't love the truth like I should. I just, I, I do, I lie. I don't tell, tell stories the right way. I don't, I don't always, I'm not always honest about myself, etc. So we, we, need to, we need to tell the truth. Leviticus 19.36, use honest scales and honest weights, an honest ephah and an honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You know, in other words, carry your business in an honest way. Proverbs 12.22, the Lord detests lying lips but he delights in men who are truthful. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. (laughs) Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Those are some scary verses, I'll tell you. Better not to vow than to make a promise to God and not keep it. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no, said Jesus. Is that primarily just speaking of words out of our mouth rather than a demeanor that gets us into some evil? I mean, I'm thinking of David when he's saying madness. Right. Right, I know, I remember the story. I hate to say this, but I myself in things like job interviews or to what extent Uh, well, now that's different. Okay, that's what I'm asking. All right, that's different. Now let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. We were just talking about this the other day. We really were. And um, in Job it says, how painful are honest words. You all know what I'm talking about. All right, first of all, it may not necessarily be true that that lady's dress is a hideous monstrosity. That may just be your opinion, okay? But even saying, it is my opinion that your dress is a hideous monstrosity is unhelpful, Okay. Um, there's just some things we ought not to say. There's only certain times and places that we're commanded to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, okay? Just be humble enough to realize it may not be the truth. Maybe that God loves that dress. (laughs) So keep your opinion to yourself. But, you know, the fact is that we ought to hold back some things. I think that's why God has given us clothing, to cover up some things. There's just some things that we ought not to be fully disclosing, all right? And some of that is just hurtful opinions about others, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm not saying that we ought to go around spewing forth. I think that's a sign of immaturity to not say, you know, that we're, there's no control. Set a guard over the lips of my mouth, the door of my mouth. I don't want to just be running off at the mouth saying things. 
Because where words are many, sin is inevitable. I want to be careful not to say bunches of things like that. No, I think, however, what this is saying is whatever does come out of your mouth ought to be true. That's what I'm saying. You don't have to speak all the truths you know. You know, and I, I think even for me, that's, that's a, a goal even that I not say too many things. You know, I might have lots and lots and lots to say about a topic and I ought to be wise about choosing just a few words. Like if I'm talking to somebody who has a limited ability to hear, then say a few things and that's it. So we're not supposed to just pour out all the truths we know. But all I'm saying is I'm just working another, the other end of the equation. Just be sure everything that does come out of your mouth really is true. That's what I'm asking is just be sure it is. And that's big enough work for us here, isn't it? That's Yeah, yeah no spinning. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Yeah, go ahead, Jessica. Yeah, see, now you're getting into those kind of ethical questions and moral questions. You know, and, and here's the thing. I mean, it's, it's the same reason why I'm not, I'm not saying anything against it, but I haven't invested any time in learning self-defense techniques and all that. I'm just entrusting God that I not get into that situation. So please, Lord, don't put me in a situation where I have to make that kind of an ethical choice. I mean, you look at Brother Andrew, and he didn't have to say anything. They just didn't see the Bibles. They just never saw them. You know, he opens up his, his, his suitcases and they open up his suitcase and they just don't see it. And he said, Lord, cover their eyes, you know, so that they don't see them. And that's all right, going through, you know. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, what do you have in there? Well, to open up and see, you know, and it's like you have an empty suitcase. That's what you see. All right, put it back up. <laughs> On you go. Never told a lie. And through you get, you know, so. I don't know. It's a tough situation. We were just watching a hiding place. You know, do you have any Jews here in the house? You know, those kind of questions. So moving on. So, you know, some say all's fair in love and war, but that's actually not uh, not in the Bible now, is it? You know, that's, uh, you know, that's a tough question. And, and really, there have been different answers. People have had different answers to that tough question. It really it really is hard when you know that they're going to take them away and kill them, murder them all. What do you do at that point? It's hard. You know, Rahab did that very thing. You know, by faith, she sent them off in a different direction. You know, isn't that misleading somebody? I think that may be the definition of misleading somebody. Go off this way and surely you'll find them. You know, that kind of thing. You know. So there's Rahab. But uh, just be careful. And, and I think those circumstances, let's be very, very honest, do not happen very often. You know, our lies are generally self-serving. We generally are trying to make ourselves look better, make people think better about ourselves, etc., so we ought to be careful about that. God's Spirit works truth in us, John 16, 13. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Okay? So God, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to guide us to truth, John 3, 4. And by the way, that truth, that's all truth. And uh, remember what uh, John Calvin said at the beginning of the Institutes. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. So part of the truth the Spirit's going to lead you into is who you really are. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he does it, doesn't he? Very, very powerfully. And so he guides you into that truth of who you are. And so I think part of the humility we have with one another is there are appropriate times for telling the truth about ourselves there too. You know? and, and there we have to be careful. We don't give full disclosure on that either. I think it's harmful. I really do. But there are certain relationships that can handle that level of truth-telling and just be discerning about what they are and tell the truth and hold each other accountable. That's all. I've seen some very embarrassing things that I think have been downright unhelpful, and they don't understand why God clothed the naked. There's a reason for clothing, because we can't handle the full truth. Um, Third uh, John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Perfect truthfulness awaits in heavenly worship. 
Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, so that's what, that's what we're created to be, true righteousness and holiness. John 4.23 and 24, yet a time is coming. By the way, I get, I get that our, our, our new self is truly righteous. Isn't that great? No hypocrisy, no sham. It's a genuine righteousness we have from Christ here. It's the real deal. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, and we will worship in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of uh, fa- worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. True worship is just so God-focused, Godward-focused. And if you're really worshiping, it's true worship. You're worshiping the true God, and all you want is to bring him honor and glory. And it's so pleasing, so it's so delightful. It's a mar- marvelous thing. Anything else about God's truthfulness? Comments that you want to say? Any thoughts on this? All right, let's keep going. Let's look at one more attribute. We have a few more minutes. Moral attributes. Moral attributes, now another category that Grudem gives. And this one is goodness. Goodness. The goodness of God. Definition. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all God is and does is worthy of approval. Okay? Grudem comments that this means that all God is and does is worthy of his own approval since he is the final standard of good. Good, then, is that which God approves. I think that the most commonplace words are the hardest to define. They're like, define the word is. Real tough to do. Uh, very, very, very tough, okay? And the word good is very, very tough to define. I think in the end, it's just, it's just God is good. He is the goodness. He's the standard of goodness. It's just that which corresponds. But in everyday life, I think there starts to be an education about goodness. It has to do with just blessings, Right? kindness, ministry to a need, that kind of thing, a demeanor. When somebody does something, you say, that was really good, what you did, that was good. There's a goodness there that we learn in everyday life, and then you multiply it by infinity, and that's God. God is good. And, and I think this is worthy of our meditation, isn't it? Because as sinners, we really do fear God, and somewhat inappropriately. We forget that God is like the father of the prodigal son running to greet the prodigal as he comes back and having a feast for him. That's hard for us to fathom. But that's the goodness of God. He just is good through and through. It is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He really enjoys doing that. There's a goodness to him. And it's Satan that's evil, breathing out murderous threats against us who hates us and kill, wants to kill us. That's Satan. He's evil and wicked. God is good through and through. Um, we may struggle with this because we are not good. Um, that's probably the problem. You know, it's like, boy, it's so hard to know what goodness is. Well, it's because we're not good, you know? And we're not. Remember how Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. We are talking earlier today. Somebody asked if I wanted a drink, and I said, well, in the common parlance, I'm good. I'm good, you know? <laughs> I have theological problems with that statement, I said. But you know what I mean when I say I'm good, meaning I don't want to drink. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> That's what that means. But, uh, you know, Jesus had said, you know, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? God knows how to be good. We have an instinct of goodness, and we do it pretty well toward our children, feed them and care for them and love them, and we're called evil, all right? So that's why we struggle with this idea of the goodness of God. All right, so God is the absolute standard of goodness. We've already seen this. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. All right? Um, God's goodness means that he hates evil and has nothing to do with it. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. People can experience that God is good. 
All right, Exodus 3, 9, sorry, 33, 19. This is the Lord speaking to Moses on the mountain. He says, I will call, cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I, ha- I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that's, and let's meditate on that. What does that mean when, when God says to Moses, I'll cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. You just see how good I am. You know, that's, it's just such a basic word that we struggle with it, but there's just a, a, a perfect goodness to God that passed in front of Moses and it just melted him and caused his face to shine and it was just marvelous. Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 106, 1, Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His love endures forever. Uh, Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. So much of this is just experiential, right? Blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. We learn goodness by the physical world that's around, it, around us. Also, the scripture teaches us that God's actions are good. I mean, we get this right from the very beginning. God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw, you remember, in, in Genesis 1. And then God looks at everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. It's actually, the Hebrew word for good is repeated there. That's why we have the intensive. Good, good, really good. All right, Psalm 119, 68. You are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Uh, that's beautiful there. You are good and what flows from you is good. Right? So that's uh, marvelous. Psalm 104, the whole psalm praises God's lavish goodness to all the creatures in his universe and sustaining them every day. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. God gives good things to his creation. Everything good in the universe then comes from God. Every good and perfect gift, James 1.17, comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So God gives nothing but good gifts and everything he gives is good. God's goodness is especially lavished on his elect children. God, uh, uh, goodwill leading to good gifts. So God has a goodwill toward us and it leads to good gifts. You are good and you do what is good. And that's especially true of God's elect. Romans 12, 2, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, the context there is, if you're trying to find out what God's purpose for your life is, present your body to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's good. God has a good will for you. It's a marvelous thing. He's worked it out, and it's a good plan. Okay? So that's what Romans... Uh, and then uh, Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. He holds nothing good back. So that implies that if something isn't in your life right now, what is it telling you? It's not good for you. He doesn't hold back any good thing. It's not good for you to have it. You know, here's here's the thing. I think there's just a category of blessings that only come if we pray for them. In other words, we have to pray for them. And you could say, well, there's some things that are good and God intends to give us. Yes, but not without the prayer. It wouldn't be good for you to have it without the prayer. And so he's withholding it from you. It's a good thing he wants you to have, but he wants you to pray for it first. And so there are some good things he's withholding from you because you're not asking him for them. If you would just go and ask, he'll give you those good things. Right now, it's not good for you to have them in the present state. But if you would just ask him for them and you remember your prayer and, and it might take a year of praying. God sometimes really trains us in this, and then he... Un- he, he, he gives you that good thing. Yeah, Flynn. I was thinking about things that I've been wanting in my own life, you know, maybe prayer to God in some various areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also true, I guess, that there are certain things you don't have to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't have them, 
Very much. He's clearly wanting to train us in godliness. Wants to train us in faith and in patience. He, so he withholds things and then opens his hand and gives them. And so that trains us to pray. That's so. Thank you, Flynn. That was really beneficial. Thank you. Let's finish this little section so we're not right in the middle of something at the uh, next time. How is goodness a communicable attribute? Well, God commands us to be good. He does. To, to love what is good and to do good and to hate all evil. Ephesians 5, 8, 9, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So find out what is goodness and do it. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. We should be hating evil, loving what is good. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. And so God wants us to be good and to love what is good and to hate the opposite of good, which is evil. God works goodness in us by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Romans 15, 14, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. What a statement. Especially when we get no one is good but God alone. But here Paul is saying you're full of goodness. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is apart from this special working of grace in the gospel, no one is good. But now that you are being worked on by the gospel and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you're adopted sons and daughters of the living God, you're full of goodness now. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? And all saints will be perfectly good in heaven. This means we'll be perfectly approved by God and we will perfectly approve of God in everything that he is and does. So that's uh, our future in goodness. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the study we've had tonight, the things we've learned. Thank you for your goodness, O Lord, that we cannot fathom it all. We don't understand it, Lord. You are not a wicked tyrant. You're not an evil being. And I think how much of Satan's uh, work in this world is to give us a perverse and twisted view of God as though he is, is evil and intends evil and, and is using his, his sovereign power tyrannically to destroy lives. When Satan is really the one who is, is that way, he is the god of this age who blinds people's eyes and who who is a thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy help us to see what the bible says that you are good and you do good and everything you do is good and right and so we would uh, trust in you and lord we ask this one thing please make us good make us different make us good people uh, through and through in jesus name amen thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.